So I'm going to ask you, the greatest fear I have is ever to, to bore anybody with the Word of God, to be able to come to a group of people that love the Bible as much as I do. This is really, this is fun. And I, I'm afraid I don't want to get caught up with the fun and miss what God would have me to do. I'm going to ask that you would pray for me. That way, uh, if it doesn't make sense, if it's boring, it's your fault because you didn't pray. Uh, that way it takes all the pressure off me and that we can just enjoy sharing with you the things God has taught me about joy. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful to meet in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we would ask that you would teach us. Father, help us to understand your heart. That we might, as we pray for thy will to be done, we might know thy will that it might be done in our lives as we respond in obedience to your Lordship. So, Father, we commit this time to you and ask that you might do a wonderful work. We ask this in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's children said, In my um, 25 years or so of ministry, I've learned a few things. One thing I've learned is this. That it's not just what you believe to be true, it's really what makes sense to you. I've always been amazed at different people I've had in my office that will do stupid things. Think of one man right now that ran off with his secretary from his wife, kind of a familiar story. And I had a chance to talk to him after this whole thing. And I said, why did you do that? And he says, well, I don't know. I said, do you believe adultery is right? No, I think that's wrong. I think it's, it's horrible. Well, well, why did you do that? And you know what he finally came up with? He says, all I can tell you is at the moment, it made sense to me. At the moment, it made sense to me. And all of a sudden, it really hit me. You know, many people, they don't do what they believe. You can believe what you believe, but you tend to do what makes sense to you. So then what ought we to be doing as we learn the Word of God? Not learning more stuff to believe in, but understanding the wisdom of the wisdom of God. In other words, if it doesn't make sense, you're not going to do it. So my commitment, I know my, my heart passion, is to help people see that the Word of God makes sense. Because the more the Word of God makes sense to you, the more the Word of God's going to be part of your life. Because you're going to tend to do more of what makes sense to you than what you actually believe. So I don't really care so much anymore what you believe. I'm more concerned what makes sense to you as you understand the Word of God. The, the other thing that ties into this that I, I've learned over these years is I've observed people that people tend to be fearful. There's like this underlying dread in most people's lives. I've always wondered, I could never quite put my finger on why is that? What why is it that most people have these pockets of fearfulness? Well, we, uh, we're in the book of Job now. We've had a little bit of a parking problem. So I thought by teaching the book of Job, we'll drive enough people away and we'll have more than enough room for parking. But before we did the book of Job, we uh, just finished the study of the book of Philippians. Philippians is a book of joy. The reason I did that book is because, at least in our area, it seemed like a whole lot of folks looked like they've been baptized by pickle juice. I mean, it's just... They were not showing any enjoyment, any excitement about the Christian life. I mean, if you get a handle on the gospel and, and, and what he's done for us and where we're headed, folks, then how in the world can you not be excited? And how can you not express, again, the fruit of the Spirit of not just love, but joy as well? So I decided to take our people through a, a year study of the book of Philippians. 
And I want to stir your thinking up a little bit about this. I want it to make sense to you because there's some aspects that make real sense to me now. And because of that, I'm beginning to understand why a lot of people struggle with this sense of dread, the sense of fear. And basically, if you ever study the concept of joy, joy, the word kara, it simply is the, the absence of fear. People who are fearful, they, they, they quench the whole experience of joy. To be joyful is not necessarily always to be happy or to be giddy. You can have joy and be, be, be full of uh, uh, tears. You, you can be in agony and still have joy. The issue is you're not afraid. And when you're not afraid, when you're released of being fearful, the experience is what the Greeks described as, as joy. So it can be something constant. It's not up and down based on what's going on with you, but it is something that we need to get a handle on and after my study of Philippians, I think I have a little better handle on this concept of why a lot of people aren't joyful. In the 60s, we began to talk less and less about responsibility and, and duty like they did in the 50s. We began to talk more about wants. The 60s, that was my, my decade when I was in high school, junior high and college. It was a pretty self-centered uh, decade of time. And basically everybody wanted what they wanted. I wanted this, I wanted that, I wanted this. In the 70s and 80s, we kind of faded out of that into not so much wants, but to needs. You know, it's not that I want this, it's that I need this, or I, I need that. Well, at first, that sounds like an improvement, but, but if needs are only warmed over wants, if this simply is a linguistic cover-up of saying that, well, it used to be, I want a new car, now it's what? I need a new car. You know, I want new clothes. No, I don't want them, it's just I need new clothes. I want a bigger house. No, I now need a bigger house. Like I say, it's been true of, uh, well, the last, what, four or five decades. I mean, it was true of the yuppies, then it was of the boomers, then it was the busters, and what they call you, Generation X, I guess, because they're still trying to figure you out. But the last four decades, it's still really, we all share one thing in common. And what we share in common, and I think it is this, that wipes out the experience of joy for a Christian. What I'm talking about is greed. I believe that most people deal and struggle with this whole thing of being greedy. Now you may say, well, I beg your pardon, I do not. Oh, you do not? I was um, here, Holly and I were married in 1970, and I think it was 1972 or 71, I think it's 72, that he had the big earthquake that had the Epic Center here in Selmar. We were living just down from Van Norman Dam, and the whole thing shook, rattled and rolled, and the whole deal... But, uh, and it was quite exciting, but I heard it was nothing compared to what you guys went through just, what, a year ago or less than a year ago? What was interesting, now, uh, Scott brought me back from the airport. As we were talking, I guess, uh, you know, Scott is deeply in love, passionately in love, because all he wanted to talk about was Denise. Denise this, Denise that, Denise this, Denise that. Well, anyway, uh, as we're going here, all I remember is that he was talking about, well, this bridge fell and this and the earthquake... And I guess the moment the thing happened, he was somewhat of a distance away from Denise. He jumped in his car, broke uh, Romans 13 and, and the law, drive, you know, drove, because he wanted to see, you know, Denise is going to be okay. But in that conversation, he told me something interesting. He said, you know, what he saw when he was driving that early, what he saw immediately was all this looting going on. Now, you know, there was a time that when there was a devastation to a community, it would pull the community together. People would help each other. Now what do you have when you have devastation? People loot from each other. And I say, well, not here at Master's College. Well, I hope you didn't steal any shirts or anything from the you know, thing. But, but there is this, this movement. And I say, well, those because 
These are people who are pagans and they're poor and because they need, you know, they loot. When times of devastation, they deal with greed. You know what they, when they ask uh, uh, Rockefeller the question, you know, how much is enough? Here's this multi, multi-millionaire and some years ago and they asked him, well, how much is enough? And he, some of you know his answer. His answer was well, just a little more. Just a little more. It doesn't make any difference how much you have or what you do not have. Greed is an attitude that that is natural to all of us. You know what greed is? Greed is basically this. Greed is the excessive desire or drive for more than you need. That's greed. Greed is that excessive desire or it can be a drive for more than you really need. You know what the antonym is for greed? The opposite? Contentment. Contentment. If you understand contentment, you don't struggle with greed. If you struggle and you're controlled by greed, then you're not going to experience contentment. And you're going to see that contentment is the key, is one of the keys to joy. Now, one is natural as far as greed and contentment. One is natural, one must be learned. Take a wild guess which one is natural. Well, you don't have to teach somebody how to be greedy. But even Paul talks about the fact that he learned how to be content. I believe a weakness of our age is the inability to distinguish between our needs and our greeds. I think a real weakness in our age, our generations, is that we have a hard time distinguishing between what we need and indeed beyond that what would be our greed. The, the, the treatise this morning uh, is First Timothy. Is there any lights that, that could be on a little bright here so I could see? You know, I had this RK, which is great, but uh, I just can't see. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is the treatise that I want to pose with you. If you have your Bibles, that is, if you love God and you have your Bibles, it is Master's College. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's the treatise beginning in verse 6. Paul says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain. What are you going to do? Oh, he's going to take a picture. Oh, oh, you want, oh, I see. Keep going. Okay. All right, let me do this again. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by, what's the word? Contentment. So he says if we can get a handle on what contentment is, then there's a great gain in godliness. Now he says in verse 7, For we have brought nothing into the world, so as we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be, there's the word again, content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, drives, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He says, if I can understand what, what contentment is in my godliness, it's great gain. Godliness itself can be of great gain. What is this great gain? Well, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. I want to just take some, some notes from uh, chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. I want to see if I can help you understand some, some things here. Paul writes the book of Philippians. Paul is um, in prison, or if he's not in prison, at least he's under house arrest. We're, we're not sure. Um, his reputation is being shot out. He has people lying about him. This poor guy, at least we know, has a death sentence hanging over his head. And in that context... He writes this book to the Philippians. And the book of Philippians is a book about joy. 
He wants to talk about, even in the context where it seems like his ministry and his life's falling apart, he wants to talk about this thing called joy. And what he does as he comes to the end of the book, talking about joy, he says, and I want to share with you the secret. Now, that's not my word. That's his word. He says, I want to share this whole thing about joy. I want to share with you the secret to the whole thing. And this morning, I want to make sure you understand the secret. Let's pick it up. Chapter 4, verse 10. He says in this last paragraph, he says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, this he ends by saying now, but I rejoice. Now, he's not a hypocrite. Because drop your eyes up to the uh, verse 4 of the same chapter. Here he gives the command to them when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. You see, to the Jew, if you wanted to emphasize something, you would double it. Uh, it's kind of a superlative deal. Like if, you know, something is really holy, you call it the holy of... Holies, or Lord of Lords, or King of Kings. Well, uh, so juicy for us, it's nagging, you know, and we repeat things again and again. But here when he says, rejoice, and again I say, rejoice, it's a command of the will. You know, I don't know if you understand, you know, we all know we are supposed to rejoice. But if it's a command of the will, then initially it's not a feeling. It's not a bubbly deal. It's something of an attitude. It's a choice to do something. You know, if you've learned anything, you're learning that faith, Faith is really, I have learned, just simply a thousand choices. A choice to believe something again and again and again. Because there's always temptations again. So I don't know if I believe this now. I, well, God, you're good. And then something horrible happens. God, I don't know if you're good. I have to make a choice one more time to rejoice that, God, I will believe one more time that you're good and you're good enough to control every detail of my life. How many times do you have to choose to believe that? Probably a hundred thousand times before your life is over. And that is walking by faith. Faith is trusting God. Trust is not just something that just goes on. It is a choice of God. Right now it's hard. But Lord, I choose to believe one more time and again and again and again. You're good. And you're good enough to control every detail of my life. That's rejoicing. See, the word rejoice comes from the word kara, which basically means to not be fearful. And the way one puts someone in a place that they're no longer fearful is to remind themselves again, God's in control of every, every detail of your life. So why'd you be fearful? Well, here's Paul's in a situation that he has lots of basis to be fearful, but he says, I'm not a hypocrite. As I told you to rejoice, I'm rejoicing. And he says, I'm rejoicing over, over the gift that you, you gave me. You see, in, in house arrest or prison, you know, they just didn't give him food. So people, he kind of depended on other Christians to help out. Well, the Philippians, they had sent apparently a gift of money with their, with their pastor. Well, in verse 11, he says uh, this. He says, now that I speak, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. He said uh, in, in verse 10, you know, I know you love me, but you lacked opportunity for your love to bloom, literally, to bloom out. But when you gave me this gift, this money... Man, I, I really realize how much you love me, so I'm grateful for the gift of money. But he's very careful on how he gives thanks for this. That's why he says in verse 11, not that I speak from want, because he doesn't want them to say, hey, you, I thank you so much for the money, more, more, more. Because again, you know, he knew people would want to attack his motives and say that Paul is in the ministry for the sole purpose of what? Getting money. 
So when he did receive a gift of money, he wanted to make sure it was very clear. It's not that it was the money that he was excited about. It was the fact that it was the love that caused him to give him the gift of the money. So he's very careful about the thing. Not that I need anything, but I'm so glad you gave it to me because indeed I'm blessed because of your love. He says, you want to know why I don't even really need the money? Not that I even really want the money. He says, because I've learned something. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. Paul uses one of the favorite words of the Stoic philosophers. Uh, this word content. Matter of fact, the word actually means self-sufficient. The Stoics loved the idea of depending on nothing outside themselves. That they were adequate within themselves. All the power, all the satisfaction, whatever they needed, they could all get it from within. They were Stoic. So we talk about somebody being so Stoic. They're very independent in that respect. Well, how could, why does Paul say, I've learned how to be Stoic? I've learned how to be self-sufficient. Well, well, Paul clarifies it in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. When he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy is what? Is what? Easy question. You can pass this. It's God. Our adequacy is God. But he's saying, I don't have this drive, this need for things. This, this For more. Whether it be more materialism or more spiritual experience or more this or more that. He says, quite frankly, the God's sufficiency in me I can experience that wonderful experience of deep down satisfaction, contentment. Well, he takes it further in verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. In other words, I know how to go to college and live like you. All right? He says, and I also know how to live in prosperity. So he would know how to live in Scottsdale. Now he says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned... The secret. He's going to end this book with telling us the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. You say, what's the secret of having a lot or having nothing? You know, a lot of us go through those seasons in our life. What's the secret? Again, he, he, he borrows a word from the mystery religions. I think he takes a shot to the Gnostics here. Uh, matter of fact, this word here, I've learned the secret. The word secret is where we get our English word mystery. Literally, he says, I have been initiated into the secret. To see the Gnostics were running around, you know, Gnosis, they had the secret knowledge, and so they were saying about, you got to be initiated into the mystery religions, the secret knowledge of this cult. So Paul kind of, I think, takes a little shot here, and he says, I have been, using their language, I've been initiated into the secret. Now, what secret? What, what, what secret? Well... How do you do, Paul, what you do in verse 12 when you say, I know how to get along with humble means and, and I know also how to live in prosperity. I know how. I've learned the secret of having much and having nothing. Paul, what, what is the secret? Well, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, he never tells us the secret. No, no, secret's in the next verse. He says the secret's verse 13. This is the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What all things? The all things of verse 12. That is, I can have much and be content. I can have nothing and be content. I don't have this, this greed, this drive, this desire for more. I'm very satisfied and I enjoy what I have. Now he says the reason is all things... 
because it is he who infuses literally strength into me. So when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, literally it's who infuses strength into me. Paul was not always this way, folks. Matter of fact, he was, he was I shouldn't say tick, but he was. In, in 2 Corinthians 12, he had a thing called a thorn in the flesh. He called it the thorn in the flesh. And he was not content with it. He did not want to continue with this thing. Whether it was his eye condition, whether it was the Judaizers following him all around, giving him a hard time unwrapping everything he was trying to do. Whatever it was, he was not content with his circumstance there. And matter of fact, three times he asked the Lord to take it away. Look at verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. He says, And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Knows I've gotten older, I thought that meant buffet me, but it had nothing to do with food. It says, To keep me from exalting myself. Now watch this. Verse 8. Does this sound like he's content? Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He was not content, not have, not satisfied, not grateful for the situation he was in. So what did he do? Well, he does what we do. God, give me more. Or God, give me less of that. Verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That is, infusing me with this strength that He causes grace. That God infuses grace into me so that I have learned and can learn the secret of not wanting and grabbing more, but enjoying what I have. Therefore, He says, I am well... Oops, there's the word, verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I know those are the kinds of things I don't think I'd want to be content with. But because of this thing when he said, God showed me the secret, I learned that Jesus can infuse me with grace so that I can actually be content, satisfied with no matter what is going on, good, bad, or ugly. Now, what is it that Paul learned? Because this isn't natural. And apparently it doesn't happen the moment you become a Christian. Because Paul's been a Christian for some time when he writes 2 Corinthians. But he learned it as a Christian later. Well, apparently he learned this wonderful, wise thing as Solomon learned it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. You know, a book that I know you, you do a lot of study in. Turn to Ecclesiastes for a minute, chapter 5. Believe it or not, we taught through this one too. I, I'm a glutton for doing things like this. But in, in Ecclesiastes 5, it ended up being one of the most life-changing books for me. It's, it basically, the whole point of the book of, of Ecclesiastes is, is life is, and the Hebrew word is havel. It doesn't mean vanity in a sense of life is empty, so kill yourself. It's havel, it means a mist, a mist of mist. Life passes by so quickly that you've got to learn the wisdom skill of how to grab it and how to enjoy the moments of it. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. How to enjoy life as a gift from God, even though it passes by and through your fingers so quickly. It's like life is a big, juicy apple. And every time you get a chance to take a bite out of it, it better be a big, juicy bite. Because you're not going to get another shot at it. I know the older I get, the older I see other men, I didn't realize how old I'm getting until I saw John play basketball last night. He used to move a lot faster than that, guys. I tell you. And all of a sudden I realized, boy, we were all, it's passing quickly. Well, in this book, look at the end of chapter 5. 
he carries on the same point. But I want you to see, see if you can pick it up yourself. Look at chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. Look at verse 18. Solomon says this. Now remember, Ecclesiastes is a journal. It's a journal of, of Solomon's life after his whole life where he could buy his will done. He could buy anything he wants. He kind of this big life experiment. Now he writes this journal and he says, let me tell you what I've learned. And this is what Solomon learned after his whole life. Verse 18, Ecclesiastes 5. Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in the labor. This is the gift of God. Now, what's interesting is keep that in mind. Now, look at the next beginning of the next chapter. He says also, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun and it is prevalent among men. What is this evil that Solomon has seen over all these years? Verse 2. A man to whom God has given, watch this, Riches and wealth and honor. In other words, the same thing they gave the other guy, but watch this. So that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. So this guy not only received the riches and the wealth and all the stuff that people have the greedy drive for, but he also received honor and everything he ever wanted. But watch. But God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a sore affliction. Now, this is interesting. To one guy, God gives riches and wealth, but also empowers him to enjoy what he has. To the other man, he gives riches and wealth and some other things, but he chooses not to empower him to enjoy what he has. That's why we have all the tabloid magazines. That's why we can scratch our heads and people have so much, but they still seem to be greedy. Again, Rockefeller, they want more, they want more. Why? Why does God empower one to enjoy what he has, what's been given to him, and God does not choose to empower the other one to enjoy what he has? What is missing in the first two verses of chapter 6 that you find in the last phrase of, of uh, verse 19? In his labor for this is the gift of God. Throughout Ecclesiastes, Solomon continually uses this phrase, from the hand of God, from the hand of God, from the hand of God. In other words, the first man, the first person, they acknowledged what they had was given them from the hand of God. The second guy, he believed everything he has, he got by the old-fashioned way, his own hand. In other words, the first guy acknowledged that what he has, he was given from the hand of God. And the flip side is true as well. So therefore, what he does not have was not given to him by the hand of God. By acknowledging the hand of God in his life, this was the key to this whole thing of God empowering him to enjoy what God has given him. Now, how do we know that's just not Solomon? How do we know that's just not an Old Testament principle? Well, because you find it in the New Testament as well. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verses 4 and 5. Here Paul says... For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with what? With what? Hello, anybody home? 
with gratitude. For it is sanctified, that means set apart, made holy, to be used by God, acknowledged to be used by God, by means of the word of God and prayer. If I can thank God for it, and then I can receive it in prayer in the presence of God, and it is not prohibited, and the wisdom from the word of God says it is good, then what is the key to enjoying everything that God has given me? Being grateful. What is being grateful? Acknowledging it was given to me from the hand of God. Why, why does God command us to give thanks? Like in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, have you ever asked yourself the question when it says, um, In all things give thanks, for this is the what? The will of God. Why would God say it is His will, His command, for us to give thanks for what we receive, no matter what it is? Is it because God has a need? I mean, He's kind of lonely up there. No one ever. It's kind of like a pastor's life. No one ever gives thanks for anything that you ever do. And so God has this need to, to be thanked. So He says, give thanks or I'll burn you. No, God doesn't have a need for us to give thanks. I mean, if I read Isaiah 6 well, man, the angels pretty well fill his ears with praise and holiness. and So that's not the reason he would say, I command you, it's my will to give thanks. You know, many times we confuse God's will with God's plan. You know, this is just a little, little bunny trail, just for a moment, the Bible's here, I'll stand over here. But you know what's interesting? Uh, many times I have students ask me, well, how do you know the will of God? I mean, how do, how do we know that, that God wants Scott to marry Denise? You know, how do we know who God wants to marry you, want to marry, go to this college, that college? What does God want you to do? Many times we, we, we uh, John wrote, well, I think your very first book you ever wrote, was God's will is not lost. He talks about, remember, that God's will is not a, a cosmic Easter egg hunt, that God hides his will all over the place. Matter of fact, we confuse God's will, God's plan. You see, God's plan, those are the specifics of, of, of maybe who you're going to marry, when you're going to graduate, what are you going to do? That's God's plan. And, 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 and you want to know how you find out God's plan? By knowing God's will. You want to know something? God's will is not lost. God's will is clearly given in the Scriptures. The only way you'll ever find out God's plan is first know His will. And if you're living out what you know God would have you to do, you know God's will. That's not the issue. God's will is throughout the Scriptures. But if you live your life in obedience and carrying out the heart of God, the will of God, then you will find out the plan of God. That always follows. And that's not a problem. So your problem is not who you're going to marry and who's this and that, God's plan. God's plan always follows anybody who's obedient to God's will. Well, here as his will, one of the aspects of his will, he says, is I want you to give thanks. Now, why? Why? It's because God knows I will never experience contentment. I will never be infused by the grace of God. I will never be empowered by God to enjoy what I've been given unless I give thanks and acknowledge that what I have was given to me by the hand of God. And more importantly, what I do not have was not given to me by the hand of God. It's kind of like you have this, our lives, we have this, this, this little suitcase, little gym box. And we're always kind of thinking, well, you know, what God, what do you have for my life? What am I supposed to do? And, and we look and we kind of go, oh, and somebody says, you know, long legs, great voice, this. And maybe God's prepared them in his plan to be a singer or to be whatever. But you know, our problem is we never look in our own bag. We're kind of, oh, I wish I could play basketball like him. Oh, I wish I could teach the Bible like MacArthur. 
Oh, I wish I could do this. I wish. And we never get our nose in our own bag to see what God has given us. I am um, living in Scottsdale. I've had to learn to have kind of a relationship with country western music. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with country western music. What I, what I mean by that is um, Scottsdale, we're an hour ahead. And right now I just realized it was 12.15. I said, have I been going that long? But we're at this other number. Uh, country western music. Some of the country western songs are absolutely ballads and beautiful. But I guess there's a conspiracy that once you're in your car and you're kind of enjoying kind of a beautiful story about this or that, then I guess they always put the next song up to irritate you. It seems like they're beautiful or irritating, at least to me. Well, you know, Garth Brooks is the big thing, but I was listening to the radio and, and he has this one song, I guess he sang a long time ago, but I thought it was so great. It's a title that sometimes God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. The story is that the, he and his wife go to some reunion at the high school or whatever it is, and he sees his old fling, his old high school fling. And he gets the old fling looks like she's flamed out, you know, because he's realized that he's got, you know, a Corvette at home and she's just a simply broken down Ford now. But anyhow, he sees, you know, her, and all of a sudden he's saying, you know, I remember when all she was all the world to me and I prayed to God, God, you give me her forever and I'll never ask for anything else. And then the chorus goes, he looks at her and he looks at his wife and he goes, God, thank you for not giving me her. And basically, sometimes God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayer, is what he's saying. And you know, I have found the best thing that's happened in my life is when I can say, God, these things you've given me by your hand, and I'm grateful I'm going to run with them. And God, there's a lot of things you have not given to me, and you've chosen not to give them to me, so I don't want them. I'm not going to desire them, and I'm not going to have a drive for them. I'm just going to focus because, God, I give thanks because I want you to empower me to enjoy what you've given me. I say, what does this have to do with fear, fear and joy? Well, let me close with, with the kicker. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews 13, look at verses 5 and 6. Here, here the writer of Hebrews, I believe it's the Apostle Paul, but there's a lot of other views, but Jesus and I agree on this, I'm sure. He says in verse 5, Let your character be free from the love of money. Now what does that sound like, folks? Free from the love of money, contentment. He says, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Everything I want you to have, I'll give you. And what you don't have is because I don't want to give it to you right now. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And what does it mean to not be afraid? It's the word what? Joy. What shall man do to me? Do you acknowledge the hand of God in your life? Do you? Well, I'll tell you, I do. I'm learning to. Because I want God to empower my enjoyment of what He's given me and my enjoyment of what He hasn't given me. Because you want to know what contentment is? Contentment is when you're empowered to enjoy what He's given you. And you receive contentment by being acknowledging His hand. Fanny Crosby, you, you've heard of her. Do you know that uh, she lived to be 95 years of age? She became blind when she was five years old. 
We're talking 90 years blind in darkness. Do you know what she wrote when she was eight years of age? She wrote this. Oh, what a happy soul I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot and I won't. Eight-year-old. You know, I'll tell you, I'm learning this in my own life. It is there, there's kind of a dark side of getting older, isn't there? I mean, I'll look in the mirror and, and I'll just say, you know, Daryl, you're better looking than that. You know, you, you kind of got to live kind of in a sense of denial. Uh, one time, I remember, I was, it was when I was doing that one time, I was at the hotel and I was speaking at this one church three Sunday nights in a row. And to get there for flights, I had to rush, finish preaching and rush to the airport and then fly. Well, I forgot my T-shirt. And I sleep in a T-shirt, you know, none of your business, but I do anyway. But I remember I forgot a T-shirt. And so uh, after that night, I got to the room and I'm brushing my teeth and I didn't have a t-shirt on. I'm brushing my teeth. And, you know, usually, you know, you're kind of holding it all together, right? Because you live in this denial. But for, I forgot I didn't have a t-shirt on and I was brushing my teeth and I was relaxed. <laughs> and I looked. See, I thought my wife, Holly, was bulimic for years because every time I'd step out of the shower, she would throw up. And now I would realize, you know, what the problem was. And I just went, oh, so this aging thing is difficult. But you know what I learned? Even though I used to be a hunk and now I'm more of a chunk, but what I've really learned is basically this. I am learning to keep my nose in my bag and whatever I can do, whatever I still can serve, whatever God has given me, I've learned to still acknowledge it from His hand. And things that God has taken away from me simply because of age he is taken away from me, and I can give great, I can be thankful for that, because apparently I don't need it. Apparently I just don't need it. I'll never forget it. It's, it's true with my relationship with my wife. Holly and I will be celebrating 25 years this June. 25 years. And I'll tell you, I am so in love, thank you, with my bride. But I'll tell you why. I, I'll tell you why. I remember when I was uh, 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 still at seminary, and I was in my second year. And, uh, well, actually it was the first year, and Gal Holly got herself pregnant. <laughs> I helped, but... She got pregnant, and so we had we had little John. Well, at that time, our 69 Volkswagen broke down, and it was going to be $325. We didn't have the money to fix it, so for three months, we put it on these blocks in our one parking spot. And, um, you know, it was there on Woodman Avenue and Woodman Apartments, and we only had, you know, one covered parking spot. Well, because we didn't have the money to fix it, my dad uh, was retired, and he was a gardener at U Lake Hughes, so he had my sister's old beat-up Fiat. I mean, the top had been ripped off, and it was just, remember those little ice skate, roller skates, you know, with wheels on them? So he said, well, you could use that for a while. So we drove that. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. It's January. Little John is little John John at the time. Holly is there. What had happened is we'd park it in front of the apartment house on Woodman Avenue, and somebody stole the seats. We didn't have insurance, that kind of insurance on it. So literally, before the Lord... I went to, and we got two old tires, and I put a tire where the driver sits and a tire where the other person sits, and you don't want to sit too close to the wheel or you, you drop down, you know? So I remember, I'll never forget, sitting there on the back of this tire, letting the engine, you know, the, the choke is out, and let it warm up, and I turned my head, and here's Holly sitting on her tire, <laughs> with little John John all wrapped, again, there was no top to this because it ripped off years before, just freezing. 
And you know, whenever I need to fall in love with Holly again, all I got to do is remember that she was with me and loved me and was a gift of God to me at that time. How could I ever hurt her? And you know, as I constantly give thanks to my God that Holly is given to me by the hand of God. My two boys are given to me by the hand of God. Scott's Bible Church is given to me by the hand. Coming here is given to me by the hand of John MacArthur. Uh, by, by God, too, you know. God and John MacArthur, you know, as far as that goes. But I have found, I have found that when everything's said and done, if, if, if prayer really personifies this Daniel, and it really does, I mean, his, he's a passionate prayer. And I'm, boy, I wrote some things down, and, and, I, and he influences my life in prayer. I would have to say anybody who knows me would say that my life is joy. It's joy. And I share it what I've learned with you. When you're content, and you are grateful and acknowledge the hand of God in your life, what he gives and what he doesn't give, God literally will empower you, infuse his grace in you to enjoy what you have. And with that kind of intentment, you'll not struggle with greed. And when you don't struggle with greed, the experience is you won't be afraid. You won't have this dread in your life. You won't have this fear in your life. Well, this I share with you as a friend. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the privilege of sharing with brothers and sisters who love you so and love your word. And Lord, I would ask... You have given us so much. Oh, Lord, give us just one more thing we would pray this morning. Give us grateful hearts. Oh, Father, give us grateful hearts. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, uh, I don't want you to walk away and forget this. I know lunch is right around the corner. Let's take a few minutes. And just between you and the Lord, why don't we do some acknowledging of his hand? Acknowledge him right now, the things he's given you, and thank him for it. Go ahead. Maybe parents. Maybe the school. Professors. Friends. Health. Intelligence. Strength. A whole body. Let him empower your enjoyment of it by giving thanks for it. And now the other side. Those things that you think you want, God has chosen not to give those to you right now. Assuming it's not because of sin. Assuming your heart's right before the Lord. Then it's his design for you not to have that yet. So can you now acknowledge his hand and thank him that you don't have the boyfriend yet, the girlfriend. Graduation's two years off. Your parents were divorced when you were young. You feel awfully alone. You don't have a lot of friends. Could it be that that too was given to you by God for a reason? That he can empower you to even enjoy what you don't have? 
Father, continue to work in our hearts that we might be a people of joy, drawing people who are in darkness to the light of our joy, to the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.